Welcome to the Smart Money Ventures podcast, where we highlight active leaders in the global ecosystem of venture capital, entrepreneurship, and innovation. We give you access to insights from successful investors and entrepreneurs that most people just can't get access to. And the only reason they take our calls is because we've been in the trenches with them for decades. My name is J.D. Davids, and I'm your host for this episode of the Smart Money Ventures podcast. To the first point, in terms of getting the right investors and the right board on a startup, it's a, it's one of those areas that is absolutely critical, right? I think people have heard the the statement before where it's like getting into a marriage with your investors, but it's a marriage where you can get fired, right? And that's that's a very, very different dynamic. This episode of the Smart Money Ventures podcast is brought to you by Brex, the corporate credit card built for startups. With no personal liability, up to 20 times higher card limits, and huge rewards, Brex is perfect for venture-backed startups. Sign up at brex.com twist, and you can get card fees waived for life. Just use the code twist during sign-up. Thank you so much, David, for uh, joining us this morning. I'm, I'm really grateful to have you here today. Uh, as most of you know, David is an entrepreneur and an active angel investor. He's got background in product, marketing, software development experience, adventure-backed startups. He's got a great successful track record with hands-on roles, both at direct-to-consumer and enterprise companies. And six of those companies were either acquired or conducted successful IPOs. I'm really excited about the fact that you've completed 35 angel investments, and we're going to focus on that today. Former COO of the PayPal Media Network and ran the Boston office for PayPal. So congratulations, obviously, on all of that success. He's currently a entrepreneur in residence at Harvard, which is a great way to give back as well. A Techstars mentor and uh, also a member of the Harvard Ventures Advisory Board. Uh, and not to mention a Goldman Sachs uh, vice president for seven years, a uh, bachelor's degree from Cornell and a Harvard MBA. So. David, I really appreciate you taking the time today. And uh, as we started our conversation earlier, the theme today really is about smart money startups, which is, can you highlight for us, based on all of your vast experience, how important is it to get the right investors in the deal at the right time? Sure, J.D. First off, thanks so much for having me. Uh, uh, The entire series that you're producing in the book and all the content, I think, could not be more important for entrepreneurs these days. And so I'm super happy to be part of it. Um, To to the first point in terms of getting the right investors and the right board on a startup, it's uh, it's one of those areas that is absolutely critical, right? It's um, I think people have heard the the statement before where it's like getting into a marriage with your investors, but it's a marriage where you can get fired, right? And that's that's a very very different dynamic. Um, we often see for early stage companies in terms of getting the right investors on board, they need to find ones that are appropriate for this each stage. They need to find investors that not only bring the Rolodex, but also the functional knowledge to help them grow. And um, in many cases, you'll find that um, one investor is not a great fit for one particular startup, but it's a great fit for another one. And so it's not a black and white thing. And, and almost all of the early stage companies that we've seen getting that core mix of like the right investor and the right board, it really is something that um, it's probably more of a, an art than science. And that's part of why early stage entrepreneurs need some help. 
Absolutely. I, I completely agree. And I'm sure you've seen this in your experience as well, that you it's something that if you get right, it can really catapult you into the next level. But if you get it wrong, it can actually kill a company. Do you agree with that? Yep, absolutely. And then the composition of those investors uh, it also plays a key part. One of the ones that uh, I saw recently, we had investors with different from different VC firms that had different drivers, and depending on where they were in their fund life, um, they had very different incentives in terms of when they wanted to exit. So one wanted to shoot for the moon, uh, another one was pretty reasonable in terms of exit, um, and one really just wanted to exit fat, uh, sooner than later. And so that misalignment at the board level obviously caused that startup like a lot, of, a lot of trepidation. Absolutely. And I think you bring up a really good point that alignment is really critical, particularly when you've got, as you said, investors that are at different fund lives, different motivations. And the proliferation of strategic investors coming into the fray these days also creates a different dynamic. Can you talk a little bit about the pros and cons of bringing strategic investors in? Sure. You know, originally, I mean, mo most of my background in terms of early stage startup, the investors have been institutional investors, and um, and you know, they played in that world for a real long time. The strategics, uh, I think, if you look at the the numbers, I think today it's something like maybe two x the amount of investment mm -hmm. at the early stages are done by these strategics. And so, you know, just if you look at them as a source of capital, it's absolutely something you should pay attention to. And then you've got the additional benefit on top of that is that. They are super connected in the industries where they operate. So, you know, getting the right ones on board in the early days can be a make or break for the company. Um, many of the early stage companies that we work with, they're really worried about what, getting the wrong strategic, right? So will it limit options going forward? Um, and it really depends on the, on the corporate strategy for each of these strategics. Some are very financial oriented, uh, like a Google Ventures, uh, for example, right. where that's less an issue. And then some are almost like there's only one exit option and, and it's the, the parent company. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So you've done 35 angel deals. Can you share a little bit about how you sourced those deals, how you selected them and talk a little bit about your experience there? Yeah. Yeah. The, the number 35, um, it's actually probably closer to 40 now, just given the last couple uh, between the direct investments that I've done. So about uh, dozen to about 15 of them have been ones where I've worked very closely with the founders and the entrepreneurs and they tend to be areas where I've got either some sort of functional expertise or some sort of disproportionate knowledge in the industry that they operate. Um, and then the remaining 20 or so are ones where I'm uh, piggybacking on behalf of some other uh, lead. And so it might be participating as part of an angelist syndicate. Right. Um, it could be a, uh, a participation where I'm a limited partner in a fund. We ended up, after my last acquisition, a handful of our employees uh, got together and created our own angel fund. It was a small fund, but what we found was that we were individually investing in these deals and it just made much more sense for us to collaborate. And so when we had done that, um, there's a whole group of smart people that we were getting together with. Right. And on my side, a lot of the early stage companies that I've seen in terms of um, how I've sourced them and discovered them, it stems out of the operating role. And so I was a, I'm a software guy. I do web and mobile software, whether it's a direct consumer enterprise. And just from the day to day, you see a lot of early stage companies. 
um, you end up having this in the startup world, as you know, the name on your business card changes, but the network of people that you work with uh, continuously kind of grows. So many leads just came from people that I've worked with in the past that have gone off to do new things. Sometimes I'm an investor, and other times they just run into interesting companies and it gets forwarded that way. Um, while I was at PayPal, I also created uh, an accelerator, and through that I probably met um, a couple hundred startups where we were doing matchmaking between the investor side and the startup side and trying to bring in um, their their employees or, or uh, help the network and so through that got to get exposure to a ton of early stage companies. Right, absolutely. And I think you touched on the point about network and relationships. I think a lot of entrepreneurs, early stage or first time entrepreneurs, they fall in love with their product and they really don't understand how important it is to build not only a team but a, a loose network of advisors and people that they ask for advice can you talk a little bit about that yeah it's um we've seen a pretty interesting dynamic through some of the early stage companies we've seen where uh, the idea always starts with a single person uh, and the single person sometimes gets together with a co-founder and sometimes it's very complimentary right it's business person and then tech person uh, sometimes they're very similar in that they lived in the same industry and then they have a, um, a working rhythm but they have got some functional gaps mm -hmm. and uh, in those early days there's a there's a very very broad mix of the kinds of people that you need to help uh, that they need in order to jumpstart their ventures and it, it's definitely not a one-size-fits-all we've worked with lots of companies where they know the business super well and the other part of it is they've never done an early stage startup and so it's more of the blocking and tackling. Uh, we've seen other cases where the founders themselves have gone through three, four different exits. So they clearly have the network, they have the know-how, but they're trying to essentially solve a problem in an industry that they don't know but right. it's got some parallels to one that they do know. And, um, and so th this is another area where it's probably more art and science in terms of pulling people together. And that's really the focus of smart money startups. We do a lot of workshops as well, particularly in the incubator world. And one of the things that really we really stress is that first outside money, not the friends and family, but really the first outside money that doesn't come from Uncle Bob should be somebody that does have domain expertise and that I've seen it far too many times that entrepreneurs end up pitching people that don't have that vertical domain expertise then they end up taking a board seat and you've got let's you know for example you've got a mobile payments app right and they go out to the local you know geographic uh, angel group and they get a couple of guys that made all their money in real estate and next thing you know they're having them redo the powerpoint six and seven times over and spending a whole bunch of time but yet they're not interacting with the real players in the industry. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think, you know, almost exactly that example. So I'm not sure if it's the same company. But yeah. <laughs> it might be. It might be. Well, you touched a little bit on uh, early on angel syndicates. Um, I'm particularly interested in what's happening on angel list with the syndicates because I have a personal belief that that's beneficial both to entrepreneurs in terms of uh, getting really highly qualified people that are vertically aligned with the company as opposed to just geographic proximity. And also, I think as an angel investor, it's a fantastic way to get access to high quality deal fall. So talk a little bit about that, but in the broader context of how early stage investing is evolving, where it used to be early stage VC funds that were simply smaller in size, and then now you've got the micro VC funds, the seed funds, individual angel deals, and now the angelist syndicates. It seems to be evolving. What are your observations in that? 
Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's very interesting time to to be an entrepreneur and, and uh, investor. So the explosion of the kinds of instruments that are available to early stage founders has absolutely happened over the last couple of years. On um, on AngelList syndicates, I think first uh, maybe a little bit of an analogy. Like when AngelList launched, um, it was no more than a couple of of smart people kind of trying to trade uh, some ideas and a, a couple of leads, and it's evolved to be. A really great marketplace and a platform, um, but much like LinkedIn, I think AngelList is a network that has a lot of similar dynamics. Where, like, if we met at a conference, we may connect with each other later on LinkedIn. But it's pretty rare that you use LinkedIn as a discovery mechanism for for someone that you connect with, right? Because right. there's a lot of noise. It's right. really hard to reach the right person. You don't have that personal rapport, and I think. The AngelList um, platform has also evolved in that way, and so there are so many angels and early stage companies on the platform. It's really difficult to actually meet a startup. It's really difficult for a startup to meet an entrepreneur now it, uh, um, to investor. Now it happens, but it doesn't happen a ton. And so where I think AngelList has evolved is that the syndicates, the launch of syndicates, it is absolutely a great way that has lots of pros for the different parties. From the investor standpoint, um, you get carry, so that's a financial incentive. Um, if you're supporting someone else's syndicate, uh, which I've done a couple times, you've got um, uh, you're basically broadening your dollars, right? Where you don't have to get as deeply involved. The, the entrepreneur side, you get bigger raises. You um, you only have to get two different checks, right? So your cap table's kept really clean. Uh, it's one from the lead, it's one from the rest of the syndicate. I'd say in terms of downsides for the angel syndicates, from the investor side, probably the biggest one that I've seen is that because now you're representing a much larger base of capital, um, you have more work, right? And so you're in essence the lead. Um, the backers for your syndicate don't necessarily have information rights, but um, you do have that responsibility to represent what's happening with a startup, and so it is more work. Um, which uh, you're signing up for. And what happens also is there's this interesting dynamic of potentially getting crowded out of really competitive deals. And that's happened a couple times. Right. Um, so say a startup's raising $1.5 million, uh, you'd normally write a check for 25000 but now you're representing 300000 So it's now a pretty big chunk of raising, raising from other institutions. And those institutions have some clout. Some clout. Your syndicate for syndicate one to be kicked out. So that's uh, there's a little bit of a dynamic there. And then the downside from an entrepreneur standpoint is this sort of amorphous process. You can run a process that's really fast. Um, it's not a set amount, so you could close with, say, 200, or it could be 400, or it could be 600. And so that unknown time and unknown uh, actual final amount sometimes throws entrepreneurs for a, a little bit of a loop. Right. So putting yourself into the entrepreneur's shoes, how do you think, what, what do you think is the most effective way for an entrepreneur to find an angel investor that has very specific vertical market expertise that would bring them not just cash, but really valuable knowledge and relationships in the industry that they're going after? So much of it is offline. A great way for early stage founders to find the first couple angels, you know, they may use AngelList like a, a big directory, right, where they do some filtering on an industry um, expertise, maybe uh, a location as well. When they find that particular person, almost always a better way to reach that person is through that warm contact. Yeah. Uh, we've all heard yeah. sort of the adage of, um, uh, from an investor standpoint, I'll take an A team over an A idea. Uh, and they'll also, 
you know, find someone who knows me to introduce us because they use that as a social filter. So you'll almost always do that first and finding your first couple of angels that way, meet in the live world um, to find the people who are also enthusiastic for what you're building. Right. It's much more effective than doing it online. The other thing that I see with a lot of entrepreneurs, particularly first-time entrepreneurs, is that they have unrealistic expectations about not only how long it's going to take to do the fundraising, but once they do sort of find themselves matched up with one or two really qualified investors that will bring more, you know, smart money, um, I think they also have unrealistic expectations about how long they need to allow that relationship to sort of marinate uh, the dating and the courtship process before we get married and start writing checks. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's a, the, the, the marination is absolutely uh, uh, something that we see a ton of. The, um, I've given a talk to some of the early stage companies and the incubators and accelerators I've been a part of. Yeah. and. Um, yeah. One thing that seems to work pretty well is if they divide that process up into two different chunks. Um, one where they're really doing more of the socialization, kind of um, um, the groundwork and the, and the building piece, where for the most part you're looking for people that are smart in the industry. You don't go right for the close right away. Um, you really are kind of building up that base and, and carve out time to do so. And, um, and that could be a couple months. I've seen it as long as six months. To a year, and um, and you're almost always sort of looking for smart people because they're not only bringing financial capital, but they're bringing intellectual capital. Exactly. And then doing exactly. that, and and that process is is um is uncomfortable for a lot of folks when they're fundraising because they feel like they need to immediately go for the ask, and and if they don't do that, they build up that base. At some point, when the round gets defined and they have a pretty good feel for the amount they need, the milestones that they'll achieve, and what's going to de-risk it for a particular uh, potential investor, that's the great time to go out and ask. And, and you naturally, during the socialization process, you'll have a couple lead candidates, which will then introduce you to others. And that fundraising side of it, the actual process where you're going out and asking for the checks and asking uh, for people to, to for term sheets, that process can be maybe two months, it can be four months, it also can be a pretty long time. And so um, you, you certainly are spending a good chunk of your time fundraising as a real estate founder. Absolutely. And I had a client that I was mentoring recently, and we got some really qualified investors to the table. But all of a sudden, he said, you know, we had our basically the KPIs, measuring customer traction, how many installs, how many, you know, sort of same store sales, for lack of a better term. And I said, you know, we need to send those out once a month, at least, so they can see what progress is being made. And he literally said that he didn't want to share that information because he was afraid if he, you know, and I wanted to publish the forecast as well, or I recommended that they do that. And he was like, no, 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 no. Cause if I miss it, I'll get fired as CEO. And I'm like, you don't understand. You have to build a relationship of trust. And that's in my opinion, I'd love to hear your opinion on that as well Is I think entrepreneurs need to understand that instead of just trying to say, okay, well, I got to convince this person that I've got the best mousetrap, that you have to build a relationship of trust. You have to think six months from now, if this person does write a check, is there a relationship of trust where there is true sharing of information? When you're going to have that board meeting six months from now, have you put a foundation of, I'm going to share with you the good and the bad and the ugly. Talk a little bit about how important trust is in that investor-entrepreneur relationship. Yeah, um, you agree on the, on the trust factor and, and how how much that actually weighs in in terms of, of a decision criteria when when looking for investors 
the um, the shopping process for investors. I think a lot of the early stage companies that I work with, uh, or at least the very first founders, it seems very asymmetric that they're going to ask for money and and um, and what they don't realize until later on, maybe the next round or maybe towards the tail end of the round, that they're picking their investors as well. And so I think you know, when they speak to potential ones, they have every single right to also ask, the, well, what's your style? What are things that are important for you? Um, they need to do due diligence on the investor, talk to other entrepreneurs that that investor has invested in before to find out you know what's you know what are their strengths do they do they become super uh, paranoid when things don't go right and they do they tend to want to replace teams or are they more of the hey we're in for the long haul and 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 those things I think early early stage companies or at least early stage founders that haven't done it before don't seem to realize that that that's the case that investor also needs to find really good entrepreneurs so they they're they're shopping for each other and then during that period that trust really builds and the expectation setting i've also seen a similar sort of thing where they don't want their very first thing that they represent to the investor to be something that they miss on right, right. so they're sandbagging um, kpis they're hiding bad news and um, that is that's that same sort of dynamic of oh it's this asymmetric sort of i've got to make sure to manage upward um, and not sort of share any bad news. And I think the ones that get experienced when that trust opens up, you can absolutely share the bad news because that's where you get help. And I think it, it takes a lot of time for a founder to get to that point because right? it's a weird sort of dynamic of, oh, what's going to happen when the investor, what if they lose confidence in me? Does that mean you know, I'm, everything's downhill at that point? And so it's a pretty fine line that they're managing. Right, absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned the shotgun approach because that's one of the first things that we cover in the workshop that we give is why the shotgun approach doesn't work. Because I've seen it time and time again where you've got somebody that's got a product that and, and they go to a group. Well, they basically will pitch anybody and everybody that will take a meeting. And obviously at the beginning to get your pitch down and figure out how to, you know, what common questions are going to be, it's, it's good practice. But at some point, I encourage entrepreneurs that if they're using the shotgun approach, it's a colossal waste of everyone's time. Because if you're not pitching the smart money investors for your deal, you're wasting your time and theirs. If you've got five hours in order to go out there, you know, let's say it's 40, 40 hours a month at least is what an entrepreneur is going to be spending on fundraising, and that's a bare minimum. Are you going to spend that 40 hours talking to people that really don't understand your business and don't have, you know, relationships and knowledge to bring to the table? Or would you rather spend, you know, 10 or 20 of those hours putting together a really good target list of companies that are in your vertical space that are the players? Um, the methodology that, that, that I teach is to put together a target list and we we put together a list of, okay, who are the companies that are likely to one day acquire you? And then we work backwards from that and we say, okay, who were the 12 companies that Google bought last year? And then we work backwards and there's various databases online where we can go and say, okay, well, who were the VC investors in those deals that got acquired? And we can go even further back into, you know, databases like AngelList and say, okay, well, who were the angels in the deal? Now, if you're going to take your 10 or 20 or 40 hours and invest it in fundraising, instead of going out and pitching the guys at the country club, let's put 20 hours into figuring out how do you get a warm intro to these angel investors that have already made money in a deal? What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I, I um, very the, the process 
in my experience, is very much along those lines. That, and that that's what works. And I think that the more that um, we can help people through the workshops that you're running, right. to encourage right. founders to short circuit some of those mistakes is is extremely powerful. Right. The the whole notion of smart money is is exactly that. Like you you need investors and early stage. Um, uh, people involved in your startup that either have the network, the credibility, they bring in terms of strategic leverage, the the first customers to the table, they help you make your first hires, they introduce you to other people that are smart in the industry, connected, and then on top of that, all of the more of the executive coaching and the and the functional expertise and the, oh, you know what, when we did this, when we were at Google or PayPal, um, this worked and this didn't work. And so all of that, you know, that notion of smart money is something that, um, if we can short shortcut that path of, of helping early stage companies get to that point, I think you know we're saving a lot of time, and we're we're now basically accelerating how companies are innovating in the space. And so I think that that's a great goal to, to shoot for. Absolutely, and you use the term strategic leverage. I I think that's huge. I think a lot of entrepreneurs really miss out on that because, of course, the goal of the first sort of angel investment beyond the friends and family is to put money in, you know, put gas in the tank so you can hire more developers to get the product out there and, and more sales traction with customers. But one of the most important things is is that person the most effective bridge to get to the Series A round? And have they navigated that those waters before? I often use the uh, the analogy that if you're going to go climb Mount Everest, you can read all the books, you can get all the best equipment, but if, as soon as you get to the base of the mountain, the first thing you're going to do is hire a Sherpa that goes up and down that mountain every single week. Why? Because he knows where the potholes are. He knows how to read the weather. He knows to, okay, put your ladder over here, not over here, because somebody died there last week. And, you know, the, the startup failure percentage is something I think we can do a lot better at. I mean... Depends on what survey you look at, but 85% failure rate. I'm just like, I'm on a personal mission to say, guys, we can do better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's a great, yeah, it's a great analogy. I hadn't really thought of it in, in the mountain terms. And then the, the Sherpas that you're getting, um, you got to make sure that they're actually in shape, right? And so another, another analogy back to the, the, the investor world is that depending on where an angel is in terms of their recent liquidity event, some may have been very active in the past and now not so active because they're either working on something new or you know, they're focusing on something different. And the same is true for institutional investors. At the beginning of the fund, they're, they're very aggressive, super active towards the tail end, and they become really choosy. And so that timing factor is also another big one, which doesn't kind of come up. And so um, that's another thing to, to keep account. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. So let's talk a little bit about some, I mean, you've, you've had so much great experience here with all these startups. If there was one piece of advice that you could give to entrepreneurs that are looking to raise early stage funding, what would that critical piece of advice be? Yeah, it's it's tough to come up with one, right? Because yeah. I think um, yeah. much much like you, we see so many uh, areas where there's sort of common mistakes, uh, and it feels like if you can just help someone avoid the common mistakes, and it's not rocket science, right? It's just a matter of kind of being there before um, we can help them around that. And so it's really kind of hard to you know, zone in on, on one or two. I think um, I think we had talked a little bit about you know, the because the shotgun approach doesn't work. The, the sooner you can get someone into this sort of mode of, oh, the, there's a difference between smart money and, and I won't say dumb money, but smart money and, and money that's not smart, right, or just money, um, they very quickly begin looking at investors in a very different way. And so that, that's, that's, that's really important. Um, breaking up the socialization phase and the fundraising phase, I think that's also um, a, a key thing for, for those 
the, those entrepreneurs. And you know, when you combine those two things, it, it dramatically shortens that that process. And so, you know, I think we do have the capability to reduce that amount of time by fifty percent. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's fifty percent. Now they can know build their startup. Right. Well, and time is money. I mean, fifty yep. percent could be huge in terms of you know. And particularly in terms of competition, right? Because it often yeah, is a race. Yeah. Good ideas are, are not usually out there solo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And especially with like the explosion of seed funds that are out there, the microfunds yeah. and then the individual angels. So there's so much more capital out there that's out there. The cost to doing something has dropped dramatically, right? So the capital efficiency. Right. Um, for a while, it seemed like many of the early, the seed funds, there's an explosion of seed funds, and so it looked like seed funding was actually pretty um, pretty plentiful. In the last six months, that seems to also have sort of decreased a little bit, and so there's a, we're at sort of an interesting time where there's an A crunch, but then the sizes of A's are growing, and so it's kind of shifted to seed. I think seed is now where A used to be, and so that's so, the same dynamics for A are now playing at the seed level. Um, you're gonna get changes in things like equity crowdfunding, more non-accredited investors into the mix, and so there's a this whole wild world of like, you know, where do I where do I get money? How do I raise it? What instruments should I use? Um, and so there's there's definitely more things for early stage founders to kind of be aware of these days, and and um, and there's a path forward. Right, right. You mentioned crowdfunding, and I think that's important that we include that in this conversation because there's obviously pre-sales of product crowdfunding. And then there's equity crowdfunding with accredited investors. And now, just recently, we now have the opportunity to do equity crowdfunding with non-accredited investors. So in light of those sort of three buckets, talk about your viewpoints on those things. Yeah, it is um, it is really kind of a, a, a dynamic marketplace. The the inclusion of the non-accredited, you know, personally, I thought that was a great thing. And we... Um, about six months ago, we had uh, lunch with one of the congressmen that was responsible for the Jobs 2.0 Act and talked about a few things. Like one was creating liquidity at the angel uh, stage. And so it's this um, angel market, not an angel market, but um, a marketplace where you could let go of your angel investments, right? So create liquidity in, in that side. Right. And part of the challenge that they had in order to even get to that point was when you involve people that are non-accredited, there's a strange definition that's out there, right? Whether it's $2 million in assets or 200 or 300K per year. Yeah. That that wealth metric or that wealth barrier wasn't one that's a particularly good one, right? And um, and my, my wife was actually in the same space, um, Shereen Shermack, she, she had this great thing that I kind of walked away with, which like, are you investing based on um, wealth or wisdom? And so you could see a case where you know, wealth is kind of the metric that we used before, but just because you have money doesn't mean that you're any better investor. Right. Um, could you use wisdom as part of the metric? And so the example there is maybe you've worked in finance your entire life, you've been part of an entrepreneurial family, you're 25 years old and you're making 100K a year. So you're not, you don't fit the definition of the accredited investor, but if you opened up things like equity crowdfunding where those smart people can come in and kind of coming right back to smart money, those smart people that don't have the money but have the smarts, if you can get them involved, I'd argue they're a pretty big value add, right? So maybe not a big check from them, but that 25, 26-year-old that maybe knows an industry, uh, knows the, the risk, it would be fantastic to involve people like that. And so I think the, as those instruments evolve over the next couple of years, I do think it's going to be a pretty dynamic time. So let's speak to angel investors for just a minute. So a lot of angel investors that I know 
are really brilliant people. They've made a lot of money. They've been very successful and they've set aside a pool of sort of fun money to, to work in the startup world. And I would say the average is probably five to 10 investments that they've made. And unfortunately, the hit rate or the return on that investment is usually really small. I, I, honestly, I think there are a ton of angel investors out there that are really smart, but they've made eight to 10 bets and they haven't gotten any return. Can you talk a little bit about, well, I would say what would be a couple of pieces of advice that you would give to them? And also talk about how AngelList uh, can be a way for them to get access to higher quality deal flow. Yeah, JD, that, that's a great that's a great question. It's actually kind of loaded with a bunch of meaty stuff in there. The um, the I, I guess the first one on on the topic of angels. The um, I think they need to have a clear sense in the beginning of why they're angel investing. And that spectrum that we've seen, uh, I know you've seen as well, is that some are very um, financial return driven, right? So it's just if this is a good investment, you know, I look at this as just a, any other investment vehicle. One step beyond that is the angel that's doing it more for uh, sort of financial return, but also get smarter in their field, right? So that's more of like a networking side. Hey, if this is another company that's adjacent, um, I can apply some of my smarts, but I also gain a lot from it. Um, that's a you know kind of a win-win, and there's a slightly different one than one. Um, if you go a little bit further, it's it's more of the kind of I'm super wealthy, and it's more for altruistic purposes. And, and then, you know, there's a very few people that are in that category. And so, most of us are in like one of those first kind of first two when it comes to angels. And maybe even that middle category has some that sort of skewed towards the. It's more for networking and 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 uh, sort of contacts Rolodex, and some is more about the expertise that I get to share. And so, when it comes to that side, if you're making the eight to ten and you're not getting that financial return, um, I've, I've heard uh, this is. True on the East Coast, I'm, I'm sure it's true um, on the West Coast as well. Where the the expectation for that angel in the beginning, we we often we run these boot camps um, or have been part of a number of these boot camps where you set the expectation that you'll probably lose everything, right? right? And so it's a it's a will you still be happy getting involved with that company and that entrepreneur and that founder if you don't get the financial return? I mean, you don't sort of plan for it, but like like what happens in that case? Are you left with or what are you left with and that's kind of a big metric and so I, I'd hope at least a lot of the ones that we've seen where they made a couple of angel investments and it hasn't returned yet um, there's some potential for it but along the way they've been getting something else out of it and so that's part of the reason why people continue to do it um, in 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 my case uh, I happen to have been I chose one of my early angel investments was in a company that was called Crashlytics which is almost directly in our um, our space Knew the app market really well. Got acquired by Twitter, but you know we were one of their first customers, and um, the dynamic was one that I knew really well. And so, just through kind of dumb luck, that happened to return. Right, it was a second investment, uh, and I'll be fully, you know, full disclosure. It um, it was it was luck, right? It just happened to meet some people that I really thought were good, and and uh, and they did a great job. But my involvement was very much luck, and so you can't, as an angel investor, look at that and be like, you know what? Oh, I'm you know, I'm great, and so you know, I should always expect those kind of results. And so, when we work with you know other angels in the space, and when those returns don't happen right away, I think we really try to focus on the other ways that they're getting value out of it. And and it'll likely be over the course of time as as the liquidity events start to happen that some of that capital will get returned. Um, but um, but you're right. In order to really kind of get that portfolio going, you have to do the you know twenty thirty investments just to at least have that rounded rounded portfolio to have that expected return. Exactly.
One of the things that I always like people to have the ability to highlight is not just about your career success, but also any uh, personal charities that you like to support. Um, are there any of those that you would want to mention? Yeah. Um, so maybe maybe it's not a specific one, but I'll give a uh, an example of um, I think how the next generation do something that's pretty big. So charity water, uh, obviously uh, a very um, actually maybe folks aren't familiar with charity water. So the notion of charity water was Scott Harrison, the founder, uh, took a couple trips out to third world countries and found that clean water was one of the biggest things that um, was preventing health um, was an impediment to health, and so he created charity water in a way that um, all the donations to charity water go directly to the charities themselves as opposed to kind of the administrative overhead. And so we kind of figured out how to do so. Um, my, uh, my nine-year-old daughter saw a charity water video a couple weeks ago and, um, and the video happened to be one where the, there was a nine-year-old that had passed away when she created her charity water campaign and her goal was $300 and she got into this car accident and died before that. So she only had reached $200. And um, there was all of this, this um, sort of, uh, sort of uh, social media awareness of what she'd done, and afterwards, and so her campaign, they reactivated her page. Uh, it ended up generating, I think, about one and a half million dollars, right? So just people coming in and donating to um, Rachel Beckwith's campaign, and so it's 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 a well worth a five minute video. So if anyone goes to charitywater.com, check out the Rachel Beckwith video. Um, and so that's, I guess, the charity that uh, has some impact, but. What my nine-year-old took out of it was when she saw the video, because she kind of empathized with the girl, uh, instead of donating to the campaign, um, and here's maybe where kind of uh, the next generation entrepreneurs comes in, she wanted to create her own charity, uh, she wanted to create her own site, and so over the course of about 14 hours, um, used some off-the-shelf web tools, got a domain name, uh, created a site, a really simple site, stitched together payment on the back end, um, and uh, so she created her own charity site to be able to donate uh, food and water to third world countries as well. And so wow. uh, if that's any indication of what, what technology do, can do, just imagine 10 years from now, you've got uh, these early stage founders that have that experience of technology. Talk about capital efficiency, right? That was, uh, right. That was zero dollars going into that. You can just imagine what some people can do going forward. And so I'm excited about the, the next generation. Well, yeah, that's exciting. I mean, the next generation of Chang's at nine years old, she's already an entrepreneur that's giving back and using technology for that. So that speaks a lot to uh, the way you're raising her as a father. That's great. Really excited well, to hear well, that. Her, I, I happen to be the, uh, the the tech support for that. So <laughs> That's great. That's great. Well, um, any parting thoughts on early stage fundraising that we may not have covered that you think are important either for entrepreneurs or angels? No, I, I think um, I think you're so. Thank you for having me contribute to um, to this. I think um, where you're sitting, you see so much of it, and I feel like of the of the thirty of these that I'll do in a year, this is probably in the top three in terms of just comprehensiveness. And so, um, really, really appreciate the opportunity to, to share some thoughts. Thank you again to David Chang for taking the time to talk with us today. And thank you to everyone who tuned in for this episode of the Smart Money Ventures podcast. I'd also like to thank the people that make this program possible. Here's a special shout out to our patrons and sponsors and everyone in the Smart Money Ventures community. We couldn't do it without you. If you'd like to learn more about us behind the scenes, check us out at smartmoneyventures.com. 
Also, if you heard a helpful nugget of value from today's program, please pay it forward to your community and share this episode with your friends and colleagues. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button so that you don't miss the next episode. And we hope you'll join us for the next episode of the Smart Money Ventures podcast. Thank you.